This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, is Ozempic the world's first weight loss drug? Weight loss specialist, Dr. Sean Wharton, helps us understand the diabetes drug that's being used by celebrities to lose weight and what happens to your body when you stop taking the drug. Dr. Sean helps us understand the distinction between disease of obesity and inconvenience or conditions of overweight. Uh, there's a big distinction there, and there is a different way to look at this drug for sure. Regardless, a lot like Botox, you got to hear it. Handy Andy Barrar helps us understand the one thing he wishes he knew before buying a robot vacuum. He has a Roomba, and he's learned a few things that he wished he had known in advance. Plus, wedding rings that are packed with technology to help you connect even closer to your spouse. If you are re-upping your nuptials or getting married, this could be a consideration for you. And are you okay with video calls, parrots, Ferraris, and snakes? It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Ask your doctor. That's the phrase you see on all the American commercials, at least. Ask your doctor. Hey, I take Ozempic. Ask your doctor. Well, that happens, in my understanding, because they're not allowed to say why they're advertising the product. <laughs> that's really it. They're not because they're trying to sell a product that that's not what it was intended for, a happy accident of the outcome of Ozempic. Joining me now to understand this would be a doctor, because this is the right way to go. Uh, the right way to go is not to go in the back alley and try to buy some knockoff Ozempic. The The right way to go is to talk to Dr. Sean Wharton. He's an obesity, obesity medicine specialist, adjunct professor McMaster in Hamilton and York University in Toronto. Can't decide between the small town and the big city, hey? You just want to do both? <laughs> I love both of them. Uh, I love it. I used to live in St. Catharines, so I, it's my favorite pocket. I love it down there. I miss it so much. Right on. We have a clinic in St. Catharines, and I got to say, it's my favorite. I, the St. Catharines patients are very clear, very organized. They, they know what they want, and uh, we have a very easy conversation. Yeah. I love that clinic. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> place to live, man. I still think that that, that that little pocket, man, there's some happy people. Uh, living in that spot. The reason why we're here is to talk about Ozempic. People are taking Ozempic to lose weight, um, Sean. So from your doctor perspective, maybe we should start this with what is Ozempic? What was it originally intended for? And why does it work this way? Awesome. That's a great question. So Ozempic is a molecule called a GLP-1. GLP-1s are hormones that come from our small intestines. After you eat food, there needs to be a message to the body to say what to do with that food. So we, and it's funny enough, during medical school, we weren't taught about these because we just found out about them in the late 80s, the early 90s. Incretins are what they're called. And they're just messengers. Messengers that go to the pancreas to tell the pancreas, you just had a bunch of food. Release insulin store that food so we can eat it later. This hormone also goes from the small intestines to the brain to say, you just had a ton of food, stop eating. So it does two things. It tells the pancreas get ready for food and that allows it to work in the type two diabetes world. And it tells the brain to stop eating. So it allows it to work in the weight management field. My brain says, have you considered salt and vinegar chips? <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> That's the way it goes for me. Okay, so Azempic comes along and it's supposed to help the diabetes folks, but then what happened that um, it it sort of worked from diabetes? And what does it say to these little messengers that, that makes them work differently? Yeah, so everyone's under the impression that it only was um, at, uh, researched as a type 2 diabetes, and then we serendipitously found mm. um, this weight management side. We knew the weight management in the brain was always there. So when it was designed, it was looked at as a hormone that could do multiple things. So, so far, we found two main things, but we're looking for other things too, as in Alzheimer's. So phase three studies in Alzheimer's are underway. Why? Because we always knew that this hormone works in the brain to make the neuroconnective pathways work better. So this may help me, because my father has Alzheimer's, to be able to not have Alzheimer's. Nothing to do with diabetes or weight management. This drug 
was this drug, this molecule was designed for a lot more and was always under play for a lot more. And like type two diabetes is a big deal. So type two diabetes came out first, but these other things were always there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fascinating. Okay. Um, when people want to lose weight, okay, so let's take the Alzheimer's, the research, the, the diabetes part off for a second. Mm -hmm. People are going to the doctor saying, hey, doc, I want to lose 40 pounds. Give me the pill. Um, I struggle with that. I mean, I'm all for medication for quality of life and all of those things. I went to my doctor. Let me tell a story. One of my proud moments, actually. I went to my doctor. Uh, my jo John is like, he's a wicked dude and he is smart, man. He is so good. And he will have the conversations about all perspectives. He will frame it and reframe it and reframe it and make sure you understand what's best for you. He came to me because I get, my family, we always have a slow tummy. Always, always, always. It's always a slow tummy. Constipation's a problem. Um, there's, uh, you know, it's it just, it's an ongoing chronic nagging thing. And he said, last minute, he was like, you know what? Because he's done all the blood tests. He's done all the things. He said, you know, there is this one drug that, you know, it's not habit forming. So you can try it. Why don't you try it? Let's try it for a month and see how you feel. And then that way, it's not habit forming. So if you want to stop, you stop. Come back and see me if you want to keep and do it, it, whatever. And he gave me the, I was like, okay, cool. And he gave me the prescription. I got to the car and I looked at it and I went, nope. I know in my integrity, I'm not drinking enough water. I know for a fact that's the case. This pill does not make me drink more water. In fact, it might make me drink less water because I'm going to be lazy. And so I put it down. I never got it. I'm still terrible at the amount of water I drink, but I'm better. And um, that was the best decision I've made for my body all the way along. Flip that script to today. I am so tempted, Sean, to go to my doctor and say, John, can I please have Ozempic? Because <laughs> I have plateaued on my weight and my health at a level that I could use a little motivation. Like, just help me peel off a little bit. So, you know, shouldn't that be my, my thing? Shouldn't I get off my butt, maybe, instead of asking for a pill? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you've touched on so many different topics here. So and the big deal is that what we really need to talk about is the difference between a disease and um, a condition, or I would just like a little bit of weight off or so the difference between someone who has sadness versus for some particular thing versus someone who has major depressive dis disorder that kills people makes them commit suicide. Those are two completely different things, but they're on the same spectrum. Somebody who wants to lose five to 10 pounds or figures they should go to the gym a little bit more versus someone who's living with obesity. They're really, they're on the, they're in the same ballpark, but they're totally different. The disease is the disease. So this drug was designed for people with polygenic obesity not for people who want to lose five to 10 pounds. People who want to lose five to 10 pounds are probably going to be the ones who are going to use it the most. And that's why I'm on the show. And that's why it's on TV all the time. But it wasn't designed for that. It was designed for the disease of polygenic obesity. And everybody knows who those people are. You see them on the bus. You've seen them walking down the street. You've, some of them may be in your family. Mm -hmm. They have significant uh, obesity that's connected to diseases such as type 2 diabetes, osteoarthritis, fatty liver, and, and they have tried everything. They work really hard. They're really smart. They're really nice. They're beautiful people, and they have a disease. That's where this medication works. And if that was the only place it worked, I wouldn't be on a whole bunch of TV shows. Right. But it's because the medication doesn't care whether you have polygenic obesity and you, you need to lose 50 to 100 pounds to even function and move versus you need to lose 10 pounds. It doesn't care. You'll still lose that 10 pounds or the 100 pounds. So that's why people are using it in such a, 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 um, a, a copious manner everywhere. And, and that's a bit of a problem because I work in the disease world, not necessarily in I want five pounds off or I want motivation or I want willpower. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that's where you you had mentioned about depression and mental health. I mean, to me, one would be a, a physiology disease problem and one is kind of a mental health problem um, in that we as humans, we want a shortcut, Sean, like we don't we we don't want to do the work like if ever you could look at capitalism and where capitalism is both good and bad. It's in the world of the shortcut, right? Like 
I mean, if you wanted to make a million dollars today, what shortcut can you make? That's that's really it. So how do you deal with that? Because I am tempted. I really am tempted. I know that in my integrity, I got to get moving anyway, because, you know, I'm a little older, the joints are sore, they're going to take a life of vitality to create a life of vitality. So, um, but people are tempted, Sean, like it's real. People want it. Yeah. So I, I, and I go back to that same analogy, the sadness because something happened versus depression. So that sadness is a situational sadness. You don't have true biochemical depression in your brain where you have a mental health disorder that is there regardless of how great the world is and how great your life is going. That's depression, right? It, it doesn't matter what else is happening. Situational is situational. So the need to lose five to 10 pounds is situational. The living with um, constant craving in your head and constant food um, uh, uh, challenges and shame and um, an inability to function and 450 pounds and embarrassment and 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 uh, the continual ridicule that's not situational no that is a lifelong horrific disease for the people living with it not because of the way they look in terms of their size but the, the way that that the people treat them and what their brain is telling them to live with that in your brain every day and not be able to work uh, properly because you're thinking about food mm. um uh, is is a major challenge so so the people who want the situational change right um if someone who wants some antidepressant because they have a situational problem i guess go ahead and take it but i don't know what doctor is going to give it to you and the person who wants five to ten pounds off um, I guess go ahead and take Ozempic, but who's going to give it to you? So not me mm -hmm. and not not your doctor. Your doctor will give it to someone with polygenic obesity. So for them to write a script for you is going to be very challenging. You have to be living with obesity. Mm -hmm. Well, there clearly are doctors somewhere that are doing it, um, especially down in the States as you see that. I mean, you know, what do you say to these doctors who are doing, which by the way, you just talked me out of this. I'm mad at you right now. <laughs> um, but the, uh, thanks for resetting my integrity. Oh, I wanted to add one thing. Um, you talked about sadness in my writing for the mindfulness. Uh, we talk about happiness and sadness. They dance, right? They have to coexist. So that those situational sadness, like you talk about, this is the way I phrase it. And I, I offer this to everybody who's listening. If you can't create the distinction between that scope, that Dr. Wharton's talking about, uh, imagine happiness as a companion, not a destination or a way of being. We often say, be happy, just be happy. No, imagine happiness as a companion. Because if you can imagine happiness as a companion, that also means you can imagine sadness as a companion, which is a lot different than conditionally, like you're talking about, right? Um, so I did right. want to offer that. Still mad at you. That's great. Still mad at you. I like it. <laughs> Still mad at you. Um, what do you do to, about the doctors who are doing it? Because there's doctors. I mean, I don't know. There was thousands of prescriptions coming out of the states that were getting fulfilled, um, and stuff like that for Ozempic. And and yeah. people are doing it, and you're seeing celebs are using it, and and yeah. you know quietly endorsing it. I guess I I don't know. Yeah. How do you do that? So so this is the challenge. Challenge is this medication is very safe, and that is a problem. <laughs> yeah, because it's so easy to use and it's so safe and there's no major issues. There really aren't any major issues where they are, where they are with cancer drugs or or cardiac drugs where you can get bleeding and multiple other things where there's toxicities. There's no significant toxicities here, which means that almost anyone can take it without a major challenge and there's no um, habit forming aspects to it. Um, there's no interactions with the other other drugs any psychiatric drugs, many people are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety agents, et cetera. There's no interactions. So <laughs> that caused the company or, or this field somewhat of an issue in the fact that anyone can kind of use it, give it a shot. Um, and the Americans, I believe, always do this. They, they will capitalize on anything at any point without a regard for the legislations that are actually there. So the doctors who are other doctors who are prescribing it in, 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 in the States who are my colleagues, internal medicine doctors, they don't prescribe it to someone who wants to go to a wedding, but there's somebody out there who will and will push the envelope until they get in trouble or they change the societal norm and they don't get in trouble any longer. So the issue is think something like Botox. 
Botox is used as an anti-migraine medication. It works. Oh, really? For a neurologist for migraines. What else do we use it for now? Yeah. <laughs> it's not known for migraines as much anymore. Yeah. It definitely works and we still use it all the time. It's used for an aesthetic purpose. Right. And so we changed the the um uh the component of the society to say that aesthetic for this is the right thing to actually do. Doctors can prescribe it. Nobody gets in trouble unless you do it wrong. So is this gonna, the way this is going to go? Probably. But that doesn't mean that you're that you're going to go to your family doctor your, or your internist, like me, an internal medicine specialist, that will prescribe it. You'll have to get it from somebody who does aesthetic medicine, right? Like your plastic surgeon or um, some dermatologist, uh, maybe, maybe. Um, but it's not going to come from from your family doctor usually. Mm -hmm. That the same way your family doctor doesn't do Botox on your on your forehead. Yeah. Um, okay. So you said it's not habit forming. To me, though, that tells me that it's also not habit breaking, meaning that if you, uh, you know, you eat like a hostage, um, that you, right, that that's been set free, uh, you, you, your habits are still there, right? Like, so what happens when you go off Ozempic? I mean, I'm assuming that those little messengers get told different messages inside your body when Ozempic's not present. So they go back to the, probably back to the normal messaging job that they were doing. And so if you still have bad habits, you still have bad habits. Correct. And that's perfect. You know, Shane, that was a great way to describe this medication. This medication changes absolutely nothing about the person. It is completely just a masking of whatever you have underlying. So that person living with obesity after taking the medication is still living with obesity. They're hundred pounds down, but they're still living with, with obesity. They're the same genetic person. You don't change the actual genes. You just mask it. You take that away. That person goes back to living with obesity. Think of this as, as your eye color. We believe our eye color is a genetic thing. If your eye color is brown. Can you make your eyes blue? Sure you can. Yep. How? Contact lenses. Cover them up. Yep. Cover them up. Then when you take those contact lenses out, what happens? Your eyes go back to brown. So this exact same thing here, when somebody living with obesity, 450 pounds, takes the medication and masks their obesity, gets them down to 250, they're now living in a, in a body that can function on the medication, but they're still that 450 person. They take away the medication, they go back to 450 and they should, because that's the way the medication works. Somebody who wants to lose five to 10 pounds, it takes away the five to 10 pounds. It doesn't do anything to their habits or change anything. They take off them, they go off the medication, they go back up those five to 10 pounds, just like taking out the blue contact lenses. So if, so for someone living with obesity, 450, they should never take off the blue contact lenses. Right. Somebody who wants to lose five to 10 pounds, why did they put the blue contacts on in the first place? Right. I should never have done it. Oh, vanity. It's such a beast. It's, <laughs> it's really good for us for the whole showering thing. But aside from that, it really doesn't do us much favor. Um, but you, you had mentioned willpower earlier. And th this is a thing for me. And this is where I get curious about your job. You know, you with internal medicine and, you know, obesity medicine and all those things that are around there. You know, that that why that motivating piece where people say, you know, well, why do you want to be thinner? Why do you want to lose weight? And if your why is because when I'm, and Mel, uh, my girlfriend, she's the best at this. She says, I do this because when I'm a grandma one day, I want to be agile enough to be on the floor playing with the grandbabies. That's her why. That's why on the days when the knees are a little sore or whatever, she still goes to the gym and, and takes some ibuprofen and, and gets it done, right? Um, that's her why. That to me is a healthy, healthy why now if you can't if you can't find that power of why you're there like how do you do it as a doctor because your physiology there's a, there's an element of hey by the way you need to go look in the mirror here and sort this out in the psychology that comes with all that is that difficult for you in your job or is that just one of those tools that you just try to let them discover it that's excellent i love that question and to a large degree, the majority of the people that are coming to my clinic have a, a very straightforward why, because they couldn't get into the clinic. 
because I'm I'm an OHIP based clinic. Right. I'm an internist who works under the government. Doug Ford and your taxes pay for me, which means that I'm not seeing anybody who is 160 pounds right. who wants to be 140. I'm seeing someone who's 360 pounds who has type 2 diabetes, fatty liver, and is literally on the brink of dying. So they have a very clear why. They want to be alive right. to see their grandkids. So their why works out very easily. And we start moving forward with bariatric surgery or weight management medication because they want to live. The person who who gets to me, who's just at that cusp, who still somehow got end up getting there, where I'm talking to during um uh on when I'm I'm doing my talks on stage and etc. Who ask some uh um some of these questions. The why is is very important um in the sense that value. So instead of looking at goals, so the goal of I want ten pounds off, I want thirty pounds off. I say if you're at the stage where you're talking about five to 30 pounds, let's not talk about pounds. Let's talk about why you want to do it and what the value is. Value means I want to um, lift up my grandkids. I want to be healthy for my grandkids. That value doesn't equal weight loss. That value equals health. It means stronger muscles, stronger bones, um, uh, not getting type 2 diabetes so that your blood flow is moving, not getting heart disease. That doesn't mean changing weight. It means health. If for whatever reason, health does equal changing weight for very specific things, then again, that why and that value helps you to move forward with it. So Shane, when you talked about the why, as opposed to the what, the what, the five to 10 pounds, I don't deal with what's, we don't deal with goals. We deal with values. I value being strong and healthy for my family members. I value being alive tomorrow because my dad died of type 2 diabetes at age 45 and my BMI is now 42 and I'm on the risk I'm at risk of having a heart attack that's a very important why I got you I can take care of business yeah. there we can take care of business together well and that's so you take me back to John my doctor where John will say you know quality of life here uh, we've got to get you stabilized in this first use the tools that we have access to to get you moving and what I hear from what you're saying um, contribute as, as you feel, but you know, sometimes the medication or the surgery is the first step to stabilize or, or get things. And then you, you use the tools in your toolbox for this stage and then you go, okay, well, what's next? What do you right? And, and maybe that's the only tools and that's where it stays forever. But maybe there's sort of more that comes that, that, the value that you're talking about. And that's, that's interesting where you have willpower versus quality of life and, and where they intersect because they very much intersect. They very much intersect. And and so this is the thing. You look at somebody, and everyone who's listening will will understand what I'm saying. You look at somebody who's 450 pounds going into a Tim Hortons, and you go, oh, what are you doing? Like, where's your... And we do. We judge any, that. We say that in our heads. We might we, say it not aloud, but you say it in your head. We You say it in your head. You judge them, and you have bias. And I have those those biases. I have those judged because I was raised in the regular world with all watching all the negative impressions on TV of people living with obesity. Mean, um, meanwhile, we should recognize that maybe that person at at um, uh, 350 is going into the I decrease them from 450 350 here. 350 is going into to a donut shop and has one donut as opposed to ten. Right. They have and maybe they're down. 75 pounds. And what a victory that would be. What a victory it would be to to be like that and to be down 75 pounds. They have more willpower than anyone who's 160 pounds. Right. Who stayed 100. If they if you take your brain and put it into a person's who is 350 450, they can be 550 tomorrow. They are using so much willpower to keep it down at that level. So we judge them not thinking that they have significant amounts of motivation and capacity and willpower. This medication and bariatric surgery allows them to use all that willpower and to get to the physical being that allows them to be a lot more functional and not have the disease state connected to them. But we should never judge them and, tell, and, and then think that they don't have have willpower or that even that 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 um that the medication allows their willpower to uh, uh allows them to find their willpower mm -hmm. no it just allows them to to use it in a greater capacity than they ever have before yeah the fact that they're walking into the store to buy the donut could actually be the reframe perspective right they might have been right. on a scooter a year ago 
Exactly. Um, so that's that's absolutely incredible. What I hear here is so good. Ozempic is the topic. Look, I want to boil it down to to one way. You got to be clear in what you want, and you got to be clear to talk to an expert. I think that's really what this boils down to. Um, I think what you said, Sean, about the you know Ozempic is going to be probably a cosmetic tool. I mean, it probably is because it seems to be all right. Um, but we need to be distinct on what we're using it for and who we go to to get it and why we use it. Um, I think that matters. And I, and I wanted to offer you this. I heard this on a, a gentleman's podcast, um, guys talking about relationships. And the way that I do language, I always say, change the topic, change the clarity. And the way that um, moving the goalposts in your frame is so incredibly important, the reframe part. And the way that the gentleman said it, he said, so many people, you know, get engaged and that's their finish line. Like I did it. I got the girl. But that's not why he was there. He said, I'm not here to marry you. I'm here to die married to you. And when you change the reframe in your relationships, in the way you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, well, wait a second, I'm not here to, like you said, goals. I'm not here to be 200 pounds. I'm here to play with you. And that's right. where the reframe starts to happen. So if you look at your relationships and you look at your partners or whatever, you go, okay, well, did I marry you to have you? I mean, you can get into the psychology of attachment. That's wild. Yeah. But, or did you, or am I here to be with you? And what a, what a frame that creates even when you're looking in the mirror at, your, at the shape of your body. Yeah, and I think we need to reframe that. And we need to let people know that they are beautiful. They started beautiful. So, and that's the the the, the um, challenge that 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 we always have when when we haven't reframed it. We think that I need to lose these um, thirty pounds to deserve love, right? To be beautiful. When in fact, you deserve love right now. If you don't believe that you deserve love before you lose that that weight, then we are in trouble. Mm -hmm because you are a beautiful person right now. And by believing that and understanding that you get rid of goals and you get more, you move more so to these values and the reframing. I now believe I'm a beautiful person. I've been told that people see it, I embody it. And I'd also like to be a beautiful and healthy person. So my knees are not in pain. So my bladder is not being pushed on and I can wake up in the morning to do the exercises, to eat in an appropriate way, or to recognize that taking this medication over the long term will help me to realize all of those beautiful goals. And I continue to be a beautiful and healthy person. Science and soulfulness meet. It's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Dr. Sean Wharton, he's in Hamilton and Toronto at McMaster and York University, uh, obesity medicine specialist, internal medicine, and all those things. Sean, this is a real pleasure. Uh, thanks for helping us understand Ozempic. Terrific, Shane. Thanks a lot. This is The Shift Podcast. All right, throw out the plan. Forget about all this list of ideas you had. Um, rugs. Let's talk rugs. Andy is here, handyandymedia.com. There is a magical place about cleaning rugs. It's very similar to vacuuming and the lines from the vacuum. When I was married, yeah. my ex, like you weren't allowed to walk on the carpet and mess up the lines because it had yeah. to be perfect. And I would be judgy on that, but I can't be. Because there's nothing I love more than perfectly crafted lines from a lawnmower on a front lawn. Yes. yes. And Ryan's looking for a rug cleaner to clean a rug. He's going to pay $80. This is Ryan. Keep in mind, he's going to pay $80 to clean a rug that's not, because it doesn't cost $80, um, just so we can keep it clean. Sentimental. It's worth it. Um, but the um, But the reality is, is that, there is some magic and disgustingness. When I moved and I shampooed mine, I just did the rug doctor. I did it twice. The water was black, Andy. Yeah. Um, that's the thing about carpets. People don't realize just how dirty they are. And and we love to have them in our homes. Um, they, they're, they, they give a sense of comfort, especially in the bedrooms. But at the same time, they are they are just they just love to attract dust and dirt. 
So yeah, Ryan was asking me during the break what I thought about these rug cleaners. And we were talking about, should you get a professional or could you do it DIY? And one of the great things about when you're doing it DIY is you can take the time to clean it. Because when you get a professional rug carpet, they might make one line and then that's it. Whereas the DIY, you can go one way, then you go the other way. You can take your time and you can see how much dirt comes out of it. And it is quite satisfying to see that dirt, but it's quite alarming at the same time to know what you just took out of your rugs and that you live in that space. So I get it. I tried to, I tried to not have carpets in a bedroom, but uh, it's just not the same. So I think that if you're going to keep carpets, keep it in the rooms. Try, if you can, to keep the other areas uh, without carpet. It's just easier to clean and probably less dirt and dust will, will be attracted to it. Yeah. The uh, Although now that I'm in a place that has all hard floors um, with the house hippo here, the amount of hair. Yeah. Because now I see the hair yes. as opposed to just vacuuming it up out of the rug. I actually see the hair and it's a it's a fur ball of hair that that comes up out of the uh, off the floor here. So we, we it's a it's one of those things you do not need to see it. <laughs> you do not need to see it at all. Well, it's a great segue to what we were going to talk about is like these robot vacuums because I'm kind of like you. I love waking up to those fine lines in the carpet and Mm -hmm. and these robot vacuums can do that. So while you're sleeping, you can set it so that it will clean your floors for you. But the question is, Shane, like, do they actually work? You know, these robot vacuums have been around for a while now. Roombas, I think everyone is familiar with them. That's probably the most popular one from a company called iRobot. When they first came out, I remember they, they were more like a novelty item. You know, they kind of like tried to pick up dirt, but cats would ride them. People are like, oh, they just thought it was like a cool thing. And the question is like, can it really do a cl- good cleaning job? And what's interesting these days, and I, I don't know if you saw this, Shane, but they're trying to make these two-in-one hybrids. It's a robot vacuum, and it could also do mopping functions as well. So... It's trying to be a two-in-one device where it can vacuum your floors and then it has a mop where you put this little washable kind of uh, fabric on it. It's got a water tank. You could put some soap and some uh, detergent and stuff in it and then it will mop your floor. So I've been reviewing a lot of these and here's what I've learned about them. The, the vacuum has gotten better over the years. They, they, they got LiDAR uh, navigation on these robots where they can actually map out your room. So it'll just drive for the first time, go into your place and actually map out what your house looks like. And you could see it on an app and even tell you where it is if you're turning it on remotely, where it is in your house as it's cleaning. You could see the cleaning patterns as well. But the issue I have, and I want everyone to know this, and this is why I wanted to talk about it today, was don't buy it for the mopping functions. The mop, no no matter what robot mop you have or whatever is out there, it will never do as good of a job as just a manual mopping because it has this water tank. It's got this pad that's washable. But I was just reviewing one the other day, uh, Shane, which I posted on shiftheads.ca, a new robot mop vacuum combo from TP-Link, very reputable brand that's trying to get into the robot vacuum market. This mop, Shane, and I have video of it, and you can see it. There's one carpeted area at the entrance, and the mop is going over that carpeted area, which, which has got all this dirty stuff on the carpet. And here's this pad with this wet pad just driving over this carpet. So I'm, I'm very suspect. I, I, I wish yeah, they would stop trying to make these these hybrids because that's just nasty. Well, it feels like it's like an like invitation that. to make the stink, you know? Yes, yes. It's it's just not only that, like the amount of water that it's using to do the mop. Like, Shane, you can give me six beers and tell me to mop a floor and it will do. A, I still will do a better job than one of these robot vacuums because – nothing can replace like doing a a, a proper mopping job. Basically what it's doing is taking a wet pad and just putting water all over the place. It's not doing any kind of scrubbing. It doesn't know where, where there's a mess. However, the vacuum part of it, it's really interesting because you can inside an app now set it up so that you could say, you know what? I want maximum suction in the foyer of the house where there's more dirt. But when you get to say the dining room, 
you don't have to be on max suck. So you can actually say or or specify, I want you to clean this room first before you clean this room or pay more attention to, you know, where the dog is sitting rather than, you know, another part of the room. That's all great. But the thing about these robot vacuums, and I and I tested one the other day, you really don't know how it's going to function in your house until it's in your house. Mm -hmm. Because there are little obstacles that you'll never notice. Like I had a door stopper, which just prevents the door from hitting the wall. And this robot vacuum just gets stuck on there every time. So what's the point? What's the point of having this thing that has a base station that can charge at night if every time you wake up in the morning, it's stuck on this door yeah. stopper, then you have to pick it up and put it away. Well, it, it's it's a novel idea, and I love the idea of a little Rosie the Robot from Jetsons, right, being yes. able to get things done for you. But if it becomes more work, you know, than just getting the darn thing done on your own, isn't that sort of the rule, right? That's kind of the rule of hiring someone to come clean your house, is if you have to clean your house after hiring someone to clean your house, then you hired the wrong person or maybe you just have the wrong standard. Like, do it yourself. Exactly. However, that said, they have gotten better. One of the biggest um, breakthroughs that they've done was they, they created basically the base station, whereas the charging station, which can actually has a, a bag inside it. So anything that that robot picks up into that little canister on the robot vacuum, that base station will suck it up and put it into the bag. So this new one from TP-Link that I have, they said that that bag, you don't have to replace it after 70 days. So you could have this robot running at nighttime for 70 days before you have to replace that bag, which I think is good. So for your average cleaning, just your everyday cleaning, say you do like to see those, those carpet lines, you like to wake up to it. Yes, a robot vacuum can, can do the trick for those kind of like maintenance kind of cleanings. However, I think still at least once a week, you need to get a real stick vacuum or, or even a corded vacuum if you still have one and, and do a manual job. So it's not, we're not there yet. We're not there where a robot vacuum can replace, you know, the Dyson or, or something like that. It, it's just not there. But for the average clean, like when you see it in the bag, you're like, wow, you know, I, I, I didn't know I had this much dirt on the floor before I cleaned it. But it, it's kind of like right in the middle. But don't get it, please, people. Do not get it for the mop. And don't think that you don't have to do any kind of maintenance to it because that was the m mistake that I made was after it has the bag and it, it's picking up all by itself, you kind of forget about it. But then you actually look at it and you'll notice that there's hair stuck on the brush. On the wheels, and there's all this, yeah. yeah. So if you do get one of these robot vacuums, you're going to have to familiarize yourself with all the different parts. You're going to have to still wash it. You're going to have to clean the charging pads. But at the same token, they can be useful, provided that um, you know it can do that kind of everyday cleaning, say just in the main hallways and stuff. But it's not going to replace it. We're not there. We're well, not at the Jetson level yet. Yeah, where do you want to spend your time? I had one. Um, it was the shark version. Same thing. The canister, it would pull up to the charging station, and it would just shoop into the canister. Now, if that canister is probably similar to the size you're talking about, yeah. and the amount of hair, uh, dust and hair from having a dog uh, yeah. inside my shark vacuum, like it's a ball this big, that would mean that I would maybe get, if it ran twice a week, maybe a week and a half to two weeks before that canister would be absolutely full, yeah. right? Without a doubt. I mean, and the reason why I didn't keep it was because uh, the the uh, grout on my tile was quite deep and uh, it did not function very well on that. And the, the seam between the carpet and the tile in the hallway was a little thick and it couldn't go up. So yeah. it was, so, I mean, it didn't do anything. And where do you want to spend your time? Do you want to spend your time vacuuming, drawing the pretty lines, or do you want to spend your time with a screwdriver and a little exacto uh, blade, cutting all the hair off the the brushes and the wheels, and and maintaining a robot because that's really what the trade off is: is you become a maintenance man, not yes. a cleaner. Hundred percent, Shane. Hundred percent. That is yeah. the issue with these robot vacuums: is that you are now the maintenance man. You're you're sitting there, you know, trying to take care of this thing. I have a Roomba, and I had it since 2019, and it was working great. I don't know what happened, Shane. This thing can't get up to its base station. It walk, it drives right up. It it lines itself up, but it can't get up anymore. 
And I was on Google this morning, looking through YouTube, trying to find anyone else that has an idea of what's going on. Can't figure it out. So I got this perfect robot, except now I have to manually pick it up, charge it. It does its uh -huh. cleaning. It gets stuck. It yeah, dies. And then it, and repeat. So now I'm kind of like, you know, and I got this other one from China that they sent me to review. And I'm, I'm like, you know, am I still a believer or I'm kind of on the fence, but you, you hit the nail on the head. You become a maintenance person because well, you just have to. You might as well just clean your, your own carpets. If you might as well, if you like stick vacs are small, right? Like the hoses are small. You run yeah. over a paper clip or a bread clip or something like that, and it's going to get all tangled up with the hair and the dust. These things are even smaller. The tubes are even smaller. The bits are even smaller. They get clogged up that much more. I, I'm not a fan of a gigantic upright by any means, but there's some merit to that exercise in horsepower and just getting the job done without a doubt. All right, but before we get into uh, Andy's nuptials here, um, I have a, a couple of questions. We were talking about perfect lines in the lawn, perfect lines in the carpet. Um, for me, uh, Andy, I, I, I'm in a house now. I was in a townhouse, so I'm in a house with a yard again. God, it feels so good. So good. Um, but I, as you saw, I was started growing with some of those peat pods, some tomatoes yeah. and stuff like that. And you mentioned to me, oh, they're pretty stringy. And I said, well, they haven't seen light yet. They're still just, you know, in the greenhouse of the pod. I yeah. took them outside now and now they're all wilted. There was like 25 degrees out in the sunshine and now they're all like lying flat. Yeah. And I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, but they call it hardening the plant. So they get shocked when you put them from inside to outside. So yeah. one of the recommendations is you put it out for a couple of hours and then you put it inside. Uh, they, they, it's the ultraviolet rays. And so that's the big difference. So what they recommend is you put it in shade for a couple of hours, then you put it back inside. Then the really? next day, maybe a little bit of sun, then you put it back inside. So you kind of have to harden them to get ready. That If you take something like that on a nice day and you just throw them, oh, they, they will die. I learned this the hard way. You know, you see a nice day, you're like, oh, yeah, you guys get to get some sun. And then everything just falls apart. So hmm. there, there's a method to the madness. And that's typically what you should do is when it's a cloudy day or slightly rainy day, that's a good time to introduce them. And then okay. they kind of climatize to the outdoor environment. Um, all right. I have this over. issue all the time. Yeah, it's a right. it's a common issue a lot of people have when you grow <sighs> indoors and then you want to transplant to outdoors. All right. I, you're My not the only one, Shane. No it happens to it. me too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Andy has uh, he's got some advice. Uh, you know, he is an expert on getting married. Uh, <laughs> and, what are your uh, what's your nuptial advice with tech? Well, you know, a, a lot of people are are familiar with wearables, you know, like Apple watches and all these different kind of smart watches. Well, mm -hmm. there's also smart rings as well. Rings that, you know, have little tiny batteries and they can measure things like your heart rate. Um, yep. They can measure your sleep. They can even be used to make contactless payments. So instead of using your watch to make like a, you know, payment on, on, on your Apple pay or, or whatnot, you can use your rings. Well, some people now, are using these rings to get married. So when they're, you know, gifting rings to their to their partner, they're having these smart rings. And there's a company based out in, I believe it's in Switzerland or in somewhere in Europe, which are creating these smart rings for couples. And what's interesting is you what you could do is when you tap the ring, you could see your couple, your your husband or your wife, you could see their their heartbeat in real time on your ring. Because the rings connect to someone's smartphone and that will transmit your heart rate to your partner, uh, no matter where they are, provided they have an internet connection. And you can see in real time that that they're they're alive and their heart is beating. Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, that's, well, see, that's, but that's not good the, That was what I was thinking. Like, it, first of all, it's going to create, it's kind of like the whole, you know, red messages. And people are like, you left me on red. Um, yeah. And then you didn't respond. So then you'd be like, why is your heart rate elevated right now? Right? Like, what do you want yeah. to? And then the other part is, is if the battery dies or whatever, someone's going to think you're dead. Yes. And that's terrible. Yes. yes. I haven't, I haven't tried one of these um, smart rings. I, they've been out for a couple of years now. There's one that's really popular called the aura ring. Yeah. I see it a lot with the health and wellness community. Um, it can track your sleep. It can do all this stuff. But I haven't tried it yet, so I, I'm kind of interested in this this market. Apparently, the global sales have gone up 21 percent year after year. So more and more people are are adopting these smart rings, and I think it makes sense. You know, like 
do you, do you really need a gold ring or a big diamond? You know, don't you want something that's functional that you could actually, a lot of people like, you know, try to wash dishes with a big ring. It's not fun. You can't put gloves on. Uh, but with these smart rings, they have multifunctionals. Like you could go to a networking event and you want to get someone's contact info or yeah. share your contact. Just send it on a ring. It's just, hey, give me your phone. Let me tap my ring onto your phone. Here's all my contact details or making payments. You know, it's hard. But, but um, you know, getting married and, and, you know, proposing to somebody with a smart ring that, you know, I hope that person's tech savvy. Otherwise, yeah. it might not it might not go well. Well, you know, there was uh, Hank the Hacker's been on the show, and he has uh, one of the hacker rings that he talks about all the time. Yeah. It's very, it's exactly the same. Uh, it looks the same, um, except that when you, he'll be like, when he comes close to your phone or he holds your phone, um, the ring will unlock the phone and and give you access to the phone and to his phone. So they do it all the time, and they they even do it with key fobs. It'll duplicate, like so, someone will grab a key fob, yeah. and and that ring will store the information, and then they can create duplicate key fobs. So as much as there is filled with love in these rings, there are uh, very dangerous criminal rings uh, that are out there as well. HandyAndyMedia.com, go check it out. He's got the videos posted on the vacuums, little scooting its way around the shiftheads.ca Facebook group and follow his YouTube page so you can get notified when new videos go up as well. Thanks for being here, bud. Thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with... 877-399-9898. You can share your thoughts on these stories and let us know, are you okay with Ferrari? Ferrari. Of course. I'm team Ferrari over Lamborghini. And that may be because I was raised in a family that predominantly worked for Shell, which mm. is a very important partner of Ferrari. So I had all the F1 toys and all the posters and all that growing up. But uh, I don't know. There's something special about the story of Enzo Ferrari, you know, splitting off from Maserati to create his own thing and uh, the uh, the art that goes into the car. At the same time, though, I don't love that the company's really snobbish. You know, they'll sell merchandise for anything, but God forbid you put a spoiler on the back of your Ferrari. Like, you know, they'll come after you <laughs> if you try to customize it. So I have mixed feelings, but at the end of the day, if I could have a Ferrari, my God, would I love one. Yeah, that'd be one of my go-to cars. I mean, my favorite is Aston right. Martin, but um, yeah. uh, the Ferrari is a very special car without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, without a doubt. In fact, I went to that event this weekend, which was a Ferrari event. Um, at the airport private event and it was just you literally if you didn't drive a ferrari like you didn't park in the parking lot <laughs> it was amazing <laughs> there's ferraris everywhere almost a year ago we told you the story of enzo a rattlesnake that was found in a ferrari at a dealership in bc now enzo landed in vancouver but started his road trip in northern bc and it looks like enzo went on another vacation this one nowhere near as luxurious though he was recently found outside of his den in the uh i don't know how to pronounce that uh desert um Taya Fast reports the researchers were quite surprised to see him again. An Okanagan resident with a need for speed recently made another appearance in a Soyuz. And according to researchers, Enzo the rattlesnake is doing quite well. When I saw him, I was able to tell that he actually had shed since, which is a good sign. means that he uh, got to eat quite a bit last season and carry on his normal snake things. But yeah, he seemed to be in good good body condition and doing quite well for himself. Enzo was found slithering around a Vancouver Ferrari dealership last June after the luxury car returned from Area 27, where it picked up the extra passenger. Enzo was brought back to a Soyuz, but wildlife experts hadn't seen him since the release until last week. I wasn't sure, given the traumatic ordeal that Enzo went through, that he would have survived. So it was quite reassuring to see him out of the at the den and back with the other snakes. As the weather gets warmer, more snakes are going to be out and about and they come out of their dens, which is creepy. Uh, with that in mind, researchers are reminding the public that the best thing to do when you see a snake is run. <laughs> well, they say leave it alone. I'm saying run. But <laughs> as for Enzo, although uninjured from his wild ride last year, these days of luxury cars uh, are almost likely over. At least you got good taste, right?
It's got good taste. It's got great taste. Great taste. Fantastic taste. Yeah. Are you okay with video calls? I'm on every day. Every day we do. We've done thousands of them here on the shift, and mm-hmm. I, which is funny because I used to truly hate them. I always felt like this weird sort of disconnect whenever I was on a video call, and then mm-hmm. COVID happened, and then long distance relationship happened, and I don't know where I would be without the like twenty minute random FaceTimes every now and then with my yep. partner Laura. Like it's you got it's a godsend. An iPhone specifically because of FaceTime. Yep. I, I did. I did. I, uh, I switched over from Android for my whole life on Android, uh, to, Mm. uh, to Apple for that reason so that I could actually be able to FaceTime Laura and have it be good. And yeah, it's, um, it was an absolute, it was the right decision. 100%. It's probably one of the best decisions I've made in the last few years, honestly. Yeah. Well, we do a couple of days. For sure. So um, there are people, plenty of people who love a good video call with friends or family. I mean, I love to FaceTime Ryan unannounced. I find that funny because Ryan always answers, oh, video. It's great. Um, But do animals enjoy them as much as we do? Turns out they just might. In a paper, researchers described teaching 18 pet parrots to use video calls with other parrots, and it worked. Here's my uh, secret crush, CNN's GMOS. Do you want to talk to her? You do? Okay. It's enough to make a lonely parrot bob its head with excitement. In a paper titled, Birds of a Feather, Video Flock Together, researchers describe teaching 18 pet parrots to ring a bell. When they rang the bell, they were presented with a tablet. Which friend would you like to call? And given a choice of parrots for a video chat. You want to call Rosie? Over a three-month period. Oh, Sammy, okay. The parrots made 147 requests for video calls. Good job, that's Georgie. Some birds got called a lot. We had VIP birds. Some Some birds got called less. The ones who got called the most were the ones who also made the most calls. The researchers could tell the birds were truly engaged because they preened together, tried to touch one another, imitated each other, and even sort of sang. Hmm. Fun fact. Many species of parrots are monogamous and they spend their lives with only one mate. Although I find that to be weird because it's not like they can just leave the house and find a new mate. Like it's pretty much you've, it's an arranged marriage. Well, I mean, in the wild, they can fly. They literally can get around better than we can. So I feel like they have, I mean, there's less parrots than, you know, than, than humans. But still, I mean, uh, I don't know. I feel like they're, uh, there's some loyal birds there. And they're very smart. Not the Crazy only bird. Smart, as you just heard. Right. That does that either. So I suppose that could be a thing. Uh, very cool. If you want to learn more about the parrots, the team's paper will be published in Proceedings of the 2023 Chai Conference on Human Factors and Computing Systems. There you go. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.